want to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of Minority Report Podcast with Eric and Carell. Each episode, we talk with leaders in business, tech, and media. And today, joining us is Nicolette Gatewood, who's the executive director at BLAC. Let's jump in and get to know Nicolette. Nicolette, welcome. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We're thrilled to chat with you and get to know you a little bit more. Nicolette, where are you joining us from today? Tell us where you're at. Yeah, so I'm actually in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm new to the city. I moved here in November of last year, so a little over six months ago now. (laughs) I've got to say, though, I'm just getting used to the city because, you know, winter on the East Coast is rough, and I'm a walker, actually. So I was looking for another, like, small city that's walker-friendly, pedestrian-friendly. I'm traditionally a New Yorker. I consider Mm -hmm. myself a New Yorker, though I've lived a lot of places, but I was looking for a a new city to spread my wings in. And Philly's been great so far. That's great. Nicolette, where did you grow up? Tell us a little bit about like where you grew up. And, yeah, and- it's a little complicated. So um, <laughs> so I am Black. I'm African-American. I'm also mixed. So I grew up a number of places. So my parents, my mother's white. She's from Connecticut. My father's Black. He's from the South side of Chicago. And they met and I was born in Boston where they were both pursuing college degrees. Around the time I was four, they split and they both relocated. So I grew up primarily between a small town, a tiny desert town in Arizona with my mother and in Brooklyn, New York with my father. Also with my dad, though, I'd spend time in Chicago with his family. And he has been a working musician since before I was born. So we spent a lot of time on the road, right? I'd go on tour with him as a small child. If he was on tour, I was on tour. And so I got to meet a lot of incredible people, see a lot of incredible places. And then when I was about 18, I went to college in New York and stayed there until my early 30s. Spent a couple of years in Connecticut near my mother, and now I'm in Philly. Very cool. I'm curious. Arizona, Chicago, Brooklyn, all very different places. Can you give me an idea of what it was like to be a little girl growing up with a white mom in Arizona, and then also a little girl growing up with a Black dad in Brooklyn and in Chicago. Tell us what life was like growing up. Yeah, tremendously different experiences. So Arizona for me, I left there the moment I could. And that's not to say it's not a beautiful place. It is, and I appreciate it very much so as an adult. I will say that as a child, it was traumatic racially for me, my experiences. Well, tell right? us a little bit about that, please. Yeah, I don't talk a whole lot about that. But to be completely honest, I believe that it shaped me. I grew up in a really small town, uh, predominantly white, though there were a lot of Mexicans, Mexican-American folks, culture influences as well, as well as Native Americans. So I'm not actually the only biracial or multiracial person in my family. My cousins on my mother's side, maternally, are half Native American as well. So I grew up near the Gila River Indian community and would participate in cultural celebrations there. So it exposed me to a lot of culture. Like I said, with my father, we were often on tour. And so when I was a small child, I toured with Harry Belafonte, for example, Hugh Masekela, who's a phenomenal South African jazz musician. And both of them were civil rights and staunch anti-apartheid activists. So I think my exposure to such diverse cultures as a small child really instilled in me appreciation for all of them and also kind of solidified for me the intrinsic nature between art and activism or art and cultural equity, racial progression and respect. And so I think that kind of 
fueled my personal interests and career paths. But to answer your question, there were not a lot of Black people around (laughs) in my town when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s. And to add to that, I'm very light. So I often ended up in positions where people, if they didn't know me, they didn't necessarily know that I was Black. So I got Mm -hmm. to see behind the curtain types of racism. I think that's a a really interesting perspective. Also, I, I would love for you to sort of think a little bit too about what was it like for your dad? He's on tour, touring legends, and then also those aspects of activism even, right? And so if you think what it was like for your dad having you go with him, and then also what was it like maybe for your mom being in Arizona with you, and then also your other family members, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. Tell me what you think it was like for your mom and what you think it was like for your dad. Wow. You know, I'm not sure I've ever thought about this and certainly not on a public platform, but, you know, I sympathize and empathize a lot. So I think by the time I was born, they were older than their peers having children. But when you really think about it, they were 27, 28. I didn't have my life figured out at 28 or 38 Mm -hmm. for that matter. So to think about having a child and then divorcing, and then the additional responsibility actually of having a a mixed child, I think, and being separate from the other parent. So for my mother, who I love very much and is still one of my best friends in the world, you know, there certainly was a learning curve for her about how to raise a Black child, talking about the hair and all that kinds of stuff. But just in, I will say, I said this recently, I always respected her because she believed me. So when I would tell her about instances of overt racism or more subtle racism, She didn't ever question me and say, well, did they mean blah? She believed me because Mm -hmm. I knew better than her, right? Because I can feel this. It's not something she could necessarily feel. And she has allowed me since I was very small to teach her about things that she didn't know about. So I respect that. About my mom tremendously. For my father, I think, I know the divorce and the separation was incredibly difficult, but he was a, a young man trying to make a career for himself following his passions and certainly did the best he could with myself and my sisters. I'm actually the youngest of five girls. Five, amazing. <laughs> wow. Awesome. Nicolette, tell us what's going on today at BLAC and yeah. let the audience know what you're up to there. Yeah. So BLAC is an acronym for Building Leaders and Creators. We are a national nonprofit organization whose mission is to bring more Black people into advertising, right? We all work in the industry or industry adjacent, and we understand that for many, many decades, there's been a real problem with diversity and Black representation specifically. So BLAC was founded in 2020 after the death of George Floyd. And at that time, a number of smaller independent advertising agencies came together with the intention of producing something, right, to help themselves and by and large the industry kind of tackle this issue. So they gathered, I believe, weekly for a couple of months and decided to land on essentially an internship program, which is our primary program currently. So we're in the second year of our internship program. This year is a 12-week program, and it's honestly the highlight of my professional career thus far. So why BLAC is a little bit different So we're a nonprofit, but it's really a community. So our interns, and there are about 59 this summer, are placed at 22 different independent agencies across the nation. Through the 12-week program, the first week, we train them with as much knowledge as we can possibly give them within five business days, right? So it's not a ton. 
but we try to introduce them to as much as we possibly can about advertising and agency life, different role specifics, and specifically what it's like to be Black in advertising, which we understand can be often a lonely experience, right? Being the only Mm -hmm. one in the room or in your agency, in your department. And so our interns come from a breadth of professional experiences and different backgrounds. So this year, for example, our youngest intern is actually 17, which by the way, we had no idea of. (laughs) We learned about halfway into the interview process. He presented as a very mature 27 year old. (laughs) He's so impressed. Yeah, he's amazing. But he's so impressed the interviewing agency that they offered him a position. And there's a handful of older interns too, about my age, early 40s. And they have tremendous experience in another industry, right? That had different Mm -hmm. professions and they're looking just to break into the door and bring their arsenal of tremendous skills into advertising. And we're incredibly lucky to have them. So our interns, like I said, come from a breadth of different backgrounds. And we largely don't know that until we get to know them because our application process is super simple and intentionally. So when our interns are applying, when our candidates are applying, really, we only ask them to submit a two-ish minute video showing or telling what makes them a creative thinker. So we're not collecting resume. We're not asking if they went to school. We don't know or really care if they have previous existing advertising experience. That's really not our goal. Our goal is to open the doors for as many creative, fresh thinkers as we possibly can who would like to enter the industry. And I actually think that 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 freshness, right? They're not yet assimilated. And I don't mean this racially. I mean, like industry-wise, they're Mm -hmm. not yet assimilated into advertising ways of doing. It just brings fresh creative concepts, right? Which is what we're always kind of looking for. So back to the structure of the 12-week program, intro week, then they work within their agencies for about seven weeks. At the end of those seven weeks, they come together as a national cohort and we put them into project teams and they respond to real world briefs from our sponsors. So different brands this year at Procter & Gamble. And they actually pitch concepts to P&G. And then the final week of a program is a job fair. So we match open to work interns and our 21 alumni with agencies and brands looking to hire them. Essentially, last year, we had a over 70% job placement rate at the end of the program. Wow, that's awesome. 70% job rate. If I got this right, because usually when you think of interns, you think of, you know, Kids in college and junior year, senior year, getting ready for their first job. But I think what you mentioned there, which I think is super important and interesting is, yes, those types of individuals are in the program, but also people that have years of professional experience looking to maybe make a career shift. Is that accurate? Absolutely. When I looked at, we had like over 150 incredible applicants this year. And when I reviewed them all, it actually just really made me quite angry about the state of the industry, right? We claim this diversity problem, quote unquote, we can't find this talent. And the majority of the applicants I felt should be hired, right? They shouldn't Mm. be interns. (laughs) So actually, one of the candidates in our interview process this year was actually just offered a job by the agency rather than an internship. She skipped that step altogether. So we have 15 wow. interns instead of 60. <laughs> yeah, but they're ready. Yeah. The majority of them are ready. And so it's just an opportunity problem. It's not a talent problem. A lot of times it's not an experience problem. We understand that advertising largely is really a closed door industry and it fuels itself on ref- That's just kind of the nature of the quick Mm -hmm. 
way mm-hmm. agencies operate, right? Mm-hmm. You get a new client, yeah. you got to staff up immediately and you are referring folks that you've already worked with. And so in an industry that's predominantly white and black folks represent less than 6%, we're just, we're not being referred. That's something that might always exist in agencies, but we're trying to broaden the network of referrals minimally with the BLAC program. Yeah. And I, and I think putting race to the side for a second, I think, again, because Eric and I both are in the industry too, I think that constant referral system is one of the reasons that really challenges our innovation, our ability to innovate in the industry, because to your point, we're not bringing in people with a different perspective, with a fresh perspective from outside of the industry. It's the same folks over and over and over again. And I think that that has a lot to do with our lack of innovation as an industry sometimes as well. Absolutely agree. Yep. I pulled together a couple of thoughts, Nicolette, that, you know, I think were interesting. And I think you might think they were interesting too. Some thoughts that weren't necessarily your statements, but I want to ask you about sort of these feelings like that come along with thinking about this. And one of them you had shared a little while ago, but I thought was interesting about not having to have to check our authentic selves at the door when we come to work. You know, we were just talking about that process of just trying to find the work and just being even considered for the work. An expanded thought there was that we shouldn't feel pressured to assimilate in order to be successful, you know, in the workplace. And our identities inform everything we do personally and professionally. Tell us when you hear that, like, what does that sort of make you think about and feel? Like, Yeah. I think I said those things. (laughs) I'm not positive. (laughs) Yeah, I believe them all. So actually the reason I... I ended up here at BLAC. I saw two of their interns from last year participate in a panel, interns on a panel at a small agency week at Ages Conference. So I was, you know, sitting at my desk in Connecticut looking at the lineup and I saw BLAC and I was like, I think this spells black. I'm not sure what this is, but I I tuned in because I was a black studies major. I like black stuff. I've I've worked in cultural equity for over a decade. And so I, I tuned in and Two BLAC interns at the time were speaking about their experience during the first year of the program. And what I heard them say, like, truly moved me, gave me the chills, essentially like a physical reaction. I heard them talk about how they were taught by BLAC that they shouldn't feel any pressure to assimilate or code switch or change who they authentically were, felt most comfortable being, showing up in the professional environment, right? In the advertising world. And that so spoke to me because I I so believe that, but I don't think I'd ever heard it articulated in such a way. Brave, bold, confident young people at the time. I, I was truly impressed with them. To go back to those quotes, I don't think it's possible for any of us to navigate the world. And I mean like everything without the lens of our identity and our lived experiences, right? So I definitely see everything that I look at through the lens of somebody who identifies as a Black woman. With that said, my experiences certainly are not universal for all Black women, right? Mm -hmm. I'm American. I benefit from the ridiculous structures of colorism, even texturism, right? I'm educated. Like, my experiences are different, but... I will always be informed by my experiences as a child. The way that I look at the world will forever be informed by 
what I've been through and how I identify, I believe. So good and bad. I think it's absurd to expect that that can be turned off when one shows up to their desk or in their office. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I want to ask you another one too, not your words. This was a quote from someone else, but I think I have a, a feeling that maybe it impacted you or meant something to you, but I think it means something to a lot of people. And you talk with a lot of folks too. I'm curious about your thoughts on this quote. I think it's really beneficial for all of us not to feel like we have to swallow offenses or microaggressions that are made towards us, right? That's a very real thing. When you talk to other folks or even through your own personal experience, what does that make you think about and feel? And have you gone through moments like that with microaggressions? Sure. I think everybody does, right? Whether you're a woman, especially if you are, let's say, a member of the even the word majority doesn't make any sense anymore and is a microaggression. But if you're a member of the non-dominant or empowered like culture, I think we all encounter these things on a, on a daily basis. I think there comes a moment in all of our lives when we decide that we can no longer swallow them. However, what we then kind of encounter is the internal weighing of, do I say something now? Is it worth it? What might it cost me if I speak up against this now? I personally, I think a lot of us also understand that when you call something out, so micro or macro aggression, right? When you call somebody out on their behavior, you are initially met with resistance. And I do think that that is normal. I think all of us need to unlearn that, myself included, especially for those of us who have good intentions we misstep and things change, you know, all of the time and always for the better, generally speaking, in terms of representation, equity, identity. But we all have to be open to constantly learning, receiving feedback if we've made this transgression, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I do think that workplaces should be safe environments to call those things out, especially if employers are trying to build psychologically safe environments for people of color, for LGBTQ plus people, for gender diverse people, for people with disabilities, et cetera. Do you think mainly because of, you know, the unfortunate events mainly here in the U.S. over the last couple of years and how much attention has been paid to diversity, equity and inclusion in the workplace and brands pledging hundreds of millions of dollars to supporting Black-owned businesses, BIPOC-owned businesses. Have you seen a shift? Are you hopeful that things are going in the right direction? Obviously, we still have a lot of work to do, but I'm just curious to get your take on whether or not, like, directionally, you think we're headed in the right direction in in the advertising industry specifically. I would hope so. And I will say that I'm maybe foolishly optimistic here, but it has um, <laughs> become my life's work, right? I certainly am hopeful. I do see a lot of articulated intentions, which I think are positive. But, right, if we don't honor these pledges we all made two years ago, performative activism, it's insulting at this point. I do see that the intention has shifted. I do see that the industry is embarrassed, which I do think is a good thing. And the next steps are to actually make real change. And 
I was listening to an interview you all did with Katie Kern, and she said something that really stuck with me. <laughs> she said, um, you know, you often hear the excuse that we're looking for entry-level talent. We just can't find it. That's absolutely absurd and obscene at this stage in the game. There are programs like MAPE that have been around for four generations. There are so many programs that have kind of developed in the last handful of years or more. BLAC is one of them, right? 100 Roses from Concrete, Marcus Graham Project, hit up your HBCUs. That's absurd. But we also know that the problem isn't really entry-level talent. The majority of Black folk in the industry are actually in entry-level talent. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you know Pam Yang from Agency DEI, but she has a quote which pops into my brain often. It's not a pipeline problem. It's a progression problem, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're able to attract young, diverse talent, but you're losing them within three years, it's not a problem of the talent. It's a problem of your organization. So how are you supporting them, investing in them, allowing them to grow? Is this equitable and fair? Like these are systems, right? You have to transform your, your systems. And most importantly, the way to affect real change, as we all know, is, is leadership, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and Eric and I talk a lot about our industry is is really good at promoting new products, bringing new products to market. And you should take a similar approach to your hiring and progression tactics, right? Like if you bring a new product to market and you see that that's not working, what do you do? You pull back, you huddle internally, you figure out what worked, what didn't work, and you pivot and you go to market again. You can do the same thing with hiring. You can do the same thing with developing talent within your organization. You already have the blueprint. You just need to put in the effort, quite frankly. Absolutely. And it needs to be intentional. And yeah. I think what speaks the most is which I don't actually understand why it has not been addressed or solved by the nation's leading creative talent. It doesn't make any sense to me, but they need to believe that it's a business imperative, which it is, especially in an industry like advertising, right? We have to have our nose on culture and move with it. And you can't adequately be on top of that culture or speak to Americans properly unless you're doing this authentically. And, and these points of view come from the people you're trying to communicate with. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What excites you most about the future of BLAC? Yeah, so, so much. Primarily our current interns and our 21 alumni. They're some of the most fantastic people, honestly, some of the most fantastic people I've ever met. Like just, they inspire me so much on a daily basis. So I'm really excited to see where they go and how they make change. Again, the acronym BLAC is Building Leaders and Creators. I really look forward to the next five or 10 years where they're leading agencies or launching their own agencies and hopefully like really helping to change the direction of the industry. But BLAC, you know, has some pretty lofty goals. We're by and large a community. I think that's what kind of differentiates our program from the others, though they all do fantastic work and we partner with, with many of them. We all have the same goal. But what I found so inspiring about BLAC when I joined in February was really the networks. So we have the interns and the alumni and their network in themselves, right? And they support each other. They stay in constant communication. They help each other out through things. And when they're on the job market, they hook each other up as they should. The agencies as well, though, help each other. So there's 22 this year and they're all in varying steps in their DEI journeys. And BLAC, this internship program is 
one facet of what should be a very complex plan, right? To <laughs> to address issues that they may or may not have in agency. But they very much support each other as well, which I find really inspiring. They help each other out through things. Their community, they they talk, they connect. We all connect weekly. And what I found most touching is how connected the agency community remains with the interns and alumni. Their commitment to them is is much greater than the duration of the weeks they spent in agency. So I recently heard a story from one of our alumni. She reached out to me just for some advice. She was moving to California after she graduated. She's going to be looking at some gigs. And so I put her in contact with some people that I knew in LA. But what actually ended up securing her a job was a relationship she'd had with the agency she'd interned with through BLAC. And so they used their connections to get her in the door, which I thought was fantastic because they're really invested in her, not her as an intern there, not her as a potential employee there. Their investment was in her. That's great. Nicolette, I'm curious. You have a tremendous background already in DEI and and also deeper than that sort of understanding cultural backgrounds and understanding so many really important things. And I'm I'm curious about what you're reading today and like what's Nicolette following and reading and hearing and seeing and watching. What do you find that you're consuming to kind of stay informed? Yeah, that's a hard one. I struggle with that on a daily basis. Tell us about it. <laughs> limited time. <laughs> Just very limited time. To be honest, I rely on LinkedIn a lot. You know, I've curated my feed and there are a number of influential people I follow there. So like my niche right now is kind of like DEI space advertising. So I always recommend to folks, including our agencies or anyone wanting to learn more, but in like a a passive way, right? Delivered right to your inbox or in your newsfeed. I always recommend Nicole Cordoza's Anti-Racism Daily. I'm a big fan of Janice gassman um, and her columns on LinkedIn and in Forbes. She's been a guest on the podcast. We, um, you know, yeah. I think she's fantastic. Yeah. And on the Linky, as the interns have dubbed LinkedIn. <laughs> I just got hip to this, guys. Just the Linky. That, that's oh, new Linky. for me. All right. Same. Same. <laughs> and on thank, the Linky, you, some of my favorites. Huh? I said, thank you. Yeah, Coral and I just <laughs> learned something new. <laughs> no, they'll be excited. The interns heard me say it, I think, out loud last week. And they were like, Nicolette said the Linky. <laughs> Linky, it's a thing now. Yeah, on the Linky, I follow so many folks. Ash Ramirez is a fantastic one. Derek Walker, Kenny Thacker, Walt Gear, Sharon Hurley Hall and her sister, Lisa Hall, are fantastic. LinkedIn is a great place really just to to curate <laughs> the folks you want to hear from. That's great. What about sort of the original kind of LinkedIn, the OG LinkedIn? I'm talking about kind of like mentors and talking with folks that may share, spread, you know, sort of be that LinkedIn before there was that. Yeah. Who are some mentors for you? And and also, how do you feel, you know, if you had mentors, not everyone does, but if you did, like, how's that? influenced how you work with others and maybe mentor others. Yeah. So I've been really extremely lucky in my life, I think, to have benefited from so many hands-on mentors. And I've gone through a number of career changes. I ended up in advertising about three and a half years ago. So this is a new industry for me. So I'd say my first mentors are really like, you know, my parents, in addition to everything they taught me about life. Professionally, I think I, I gained from my mother 
my work ethic. She's just one of the, she's the hardest worker I know. And from my father, I think I just gained the confidence or almost the audacity to just lead my life based on passion, watching him do that. And so I've always done the same, right? I had no idea where degrees in Black studies could lead me, yet I've never had a job where it wasn't of critical importance to what it is that I did. That was just based on passion and what I was interested in. So that's refreshing to look back on my career and realize that it served me in that way. So my first dream really was to be an academic. So when I was in school, some of my earliest mentors were my professors. So Deborah Willis, major mentor of mine, Alam Amka as well. And then I worked in nonprofits for over a decade before advertising. So some of my former bosses are still my mentors, right? I kind of model myself after them. They taught me what I know about management and honestly mentoring. So Kanita Lloyd is one of them, Marietta Ulasia, Danetta Jimenez, so many. And then in advertising, it's really the same former bosses. So I worked for about three years prior to BLAC at a, a global ad agency called Had Ed and Partners. And the CEO is a, a man named Ryan Kayer, who's the one who got me the job, right? He broke me into advertising. And we still talk on a monthly basis. I talked to him earlier today. He's still a mentor of mine. Great. And my current boss, Chris Witherspoon, is the CEO of DNA in Seattle. So it's an agency in Seattle. And he's the chair of BLAC's board mentor as well. And I I learned so much from those two guys specifically because mm-hmm. they're really like hands-off leaders who just encourage essentially um, and back you up and try to support you in whatever decision it is that you're making. And so I think what I've learned from all of those mentors in terms of my mentoring style is to be available, to be accessible, to be a resource and provide additional resources always. And I think Maybe the most valuable lessons that I've probably learned from my mentees within the past few years is to learn from them as much as you expect to teach them, right? Especially the younger folks. Gen Z has taught me so much about confidence, I think, especially in a professional setting. They're not afraid to ask for or demand what it is that they should be getting, or they're not afraid to call certain things out. They weren't really raised with the types of fear that some of us were raised with, if that makes any sense to you, like in a professional setting, right? Mm -hmm. I was taught to be careful, especially because I was a black woman. Younger folks don't buy that bullshit part of my French. Um, And I learned a lot from them. Say it. One more question. I love the idea of these independent agencies coming together as you described and saying, hey, let's create BLAC. Let's create resources. Let's get behind this. Let's do something. Can you give a quick sort of shout out or just name some of the agencies? And let's go by names. Like th- throw the names out. All there. twenty-two of them. <laughs> as many as you want. As many as you want to say, and we'll, we can provide a way to get in touch and learn more later. Yeah. But I would love to hear some of the names. Let me just start with some of the founding agencies. So DNA is a founding agency of BLAC. Their CEO is the chair of our board, Cornette in Lexington, Kentucky, founding agency, OKRP in Chicago, founding agency, Barrett SF in San Francisco, also a founding agency. I think I might have covered all of them. I mean, we have 22, right? So in New York, we have Barker, AB Partners, Fig, Noble People, so many others I can't think of. In Chicago, we have OKRP, The Escape Pod, Upshot. 
in San Francisco, we have Baird SF. We have others. That's good. We'll, we'll get a list from you and we'll make sure it's in the show notes so that one, everyone gets the recognition that they deserve and no one awesome. feels left out. So we'll definitely awesome. get that from you. Yeah. Thank awesome. you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And to <laughs> listeners, if you're interested in joining this community, if you'd like to to take some BLAC interns in 2023, shoot me an email. If you'd like to meet our graduating interns and our open to work alumni, now is the time to reach out because we'll have a job fair at the end of this program. So the last week of July, you can meet all of them and they're fantastic. Please just send me an email. Awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Awesome. All right. Fun question. I love asking every guest that we have on the podcast, which is to give us the top three apps on your phone but you can't name email, calendar, or text messaging because that's just way too boring. All right, can't name text. Oh, yeah, I've been yeah. writing this one. Okay, so <laughs> the, the Linky. Yep. The Linky, all right, all right the Linky. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not really a social media person, by the way, that's my only social media. The music app, iTunes Music, all the time, right? Daughter of a musician. Music is a critical part of my life. And I wrote it down, what was it? podcast right gotta listen to the charity report hey love it (laughs) love it love it well thanks for being a part of minority report podcast and you know our listeners often love to stay in touch and we want to provide ways to be able to learn more about all the great agencies you named and even more and also to find some of those interns and then also find folks who are ready to work right away so what are some ways that our listeners and viewers can follow you find you and then also learn more Yeah. So to reach out to BLAC, please check our website. It's blacinternship.com. If you'd like to reach me directly, email is the best way. N-I-C-O-L-E-T at blacinternship.com or hit me up on the linky, Nicolette Gatewood, and follow BLAC on our social channels. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Nicolette Gatewood. Thanks for hanging out with us at BLAC. And everyone, thanks again for listening to another great episode. And you can find us where you find all of your audio and video, find more episodes, and just search for Minority Report Podcast and look for the logo. Thanks again, Nicolette. Thanks, everyone.